Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddie. This week, we're continuing our series over the Red Letter Challenge. Enjoy. I want to emphasize that it, that it isn't just the idea of we do these things because God has done them for us. It is certainly that. But it's also the idea that we are able to do these things because God is, has already done those for us. That, that the fact that he has called us to be his own, that through baptism we are gathered into his, uh, into his body, that, that what that does is that empowers us to be able to forgive. It empowers us to be able to serve. It empowers us to be able to give. And it, and it, it does that where... Humanly, it wouldn't, it's not that humanly it would be impossible for us to do it, because I think humanly we're, you know, able to forgive, humanly we're able to serve, humanly we're able to forgive, uh, to give, but what I like to think of it is, is that to, to do it in an impossible way. So you think in terms of, uh, for example, forgiving, and by the way, the forgiveness one seems to still be the one that most people are talking about two or three weeks after we've talked about it. Why is that? Is forgiving the hardest thing to do up there? Is that kind of what that is? Yeah. We must have a lot of walking wounded around here because, uh, but there is something to be said for that, that, that we are probably most like Jesus when we forgive people that uh, are hard to forgive, or people that have have uh, done things to us, or offended us in some way, or hurt us in some way, that goes beyond our human ability to let go of something, right? And maybe that's maybe that's what that is. But the idea is is that to to go way above what would be normally expected, I think, is what takes the power of God. It takes that feeding that God constantly says to us, I love you, you can do this. I've forgiven you, you can do this. I'm serving you, you can do this. And I think maybe in some sense, we almost need that constant remind, not just a reminder, but just that, that constant power within that it takes to do that. And so one of the things I always like to encourage people when it comes to forgiveness as an example of those items is that in the same way that God reminds us that he has forgiven us, we have to remind ourselves that we have forgiven our brother or our sister. Does that make sense to say it that way? Yeah, because sometimes we have, you know, when you have a memory of somebody that hurt you in some way, uh, and maybe you've noticed this, is that when you replay the memory over in your mind, your body acts as if it's happening right then, even though it might have happened five years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. Because what happens is we're reliving the memory, not just replaying the memory, and not just viewing the memory, you know, like, like a movie or something like that. I mean, there is a movie aspect to it. But we're actually reliving it. And if in reliving it, you don't include the part where you forgave the person then what you're left with is what? The movie of how the person hurt you. 
of how the person wounded you, of how the person was unfair to you, how the person did these things to you, right? And that's all you're left with. You're left with, that's the end of the story. Well, how is that going to affect you moving forward? You won't move forward. You'll stay stuck in that story. See, so the idea is, to, is that, yeah, you might have that memory, and the memory might be very vivid. You know, some of us are very vivid rememberers, you know. We can remember everything that was said. And if someone says, oh, no, that's not what was said, or they get the order of the story wrong, they'll correct you and say, oh, no, no, that wasn't how it was. This is how it was. And, and some people are very vivid in their memory of that. And I'm just suggesting that if you're going to be vivid in your memory about what happened that somebody did to you, make sure you're also vivid in remembering that you forgave that person. And remind yourself that you forgave that person. And that ends that story, that ends that memory on a good positive note, which enables you to move forward. Otherwise, you won't be able to move forward. You'll stay stuck because you'll always remember what that person did. And by golly, I was hurt, and that was the end of the story. Right? Yeah. Wounds heal, but they leave a scar. And when you look down, you see that scar, you remember what happened. Yeah, and then when you remember what happened, then you relive what happened. Right? So if forgiveness is part of what happened, then you include that in your memory. Okay? That's just simply saying it that way. And sometimes I think it takes the power of God to make that occur. All right, so let's get into then our challenge for today, which is giving generously. And so we want to talk about, okay, what does the Bible say about giving generously? So a couple things here. Number one, our giving begins with God giving to us. God gives unconditionally and generously, but he puts limits in so that we can learn to trust in his will and his timing. So let's take a look at the first example of that is actually in Genesis, Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, first note there. You may eat of every tree of the garden. God generously provided all, A-L-L, all that Adam and Eve would need. True? Yeah. He said, hey, everything you need is here already in the garden. Now, they were a bit confused about what they needed and what they wanted, right? That's kind of a human plight, isn't it? But everything they needed was already provided for them. But he said, you, you should not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So God put limits on Adam and Eve for their own good. It would not have been in their best, in, in their best interest to assume that they were God by eating of that tree. What would have led them to think that God was God and they were God. You ever think about that? What, what would lead them to think that? They were made in his image, they were made in his image right? They had dominion over, they had dominion over 
everything that was there, dominion meaning that they were in charge of it, they would have access to it, they would, Adam was naming those things, okay, all those things, they would have easily uh, concluded from that, that God was God and they were God. So God does what? To help clarify the reality for them. He puts a tree there. And he says, uh, yeah, you, are, you have everything. You share my dominion except for one thing. I'm God and you're not. And how we know that is you should not eat of the tree. Okay, next page. He says you shall not eat. Adam and Eve first had to learn to be grateful receivers, both of God's gifts and God's limits. So how grateful are you of God's gifts? Don't you love it? Don't you love to receive gifts? It's awesome. Yeah, right? Yeah, okay. How grateful are you of God's limits? <laughs> so they're both from God, right? God's gifts and God's limits. So what's the value of God saying, I'm going to put limits on what and how much and when and those kinds of things for you? What's the, what would be the benefit of that? Gina? He does it for us. It's for our benefit. And it's, it's, he doesn't do anything against us. So right. He's not just doing it to... Yes, it's for our good. Yes. But why is it good? Why is it good to have limits? It's lousy to have limits, let me tell you. But why is it good to have limits? Yeah, John. If we didn't have limits, we could mess up eternity. What? <laughs> If we were unlimited in what we could do, yeah. we could really mess up God's entire plan for our eternal life. We certainly could mess up our own. Okay, I, I need for you to connect the dots on that. I, I know what you're saying, but I don't, I'm not seeing the link of messing up eternity. Okay. Let me think. Without limits, okay, we'd have no curve to bring us back to oh, gotcha. what we should behave. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and so we would go off, I mean, left to our own devices as God left some people in previous times. Yeah. We would lose eternity. Yeah. A, a good example of that is the Tower of Babel story. Remember, they could do anything. The technology of the day allowed them to do anything. And so what did they do with all of the power and ability and, and technology that they had in the day? What did they determine was the best thing for them to do. Build a tower to heaven. It wasn't to solve world hunger. It wasn't to create peace on earth, goodwill toward men. It was to do what? It was to show how great we are and that we can in fact reach to heaven and maybe if we can do that, we can be in control of everything. That is so human, isn't it, to do that? So that's a great example. And so then God, for their own good, puts a limit on them. He says, clearly, you're not able to handle everything that I've given to you. So what I'm going to do is confuse you for their good. And the good was, as John pointed out, had, had ramifications for their salvation. Because they easily could have given themselves over to the idea that, hey, it's all about us being in control. It's all about us being in charge. Why do we even need God? Yeah. May. Sometimes when you, you are totally fulfilled, you have everything and you just, you know, have it all. Yeah. It, begin, it begins to lose its value and that affects the way you respond to it. 
Sure. So so it kind of helps you to be thankful when you don't really have everything. You appreciate it when you when you do get it. Yeah, and if everything comes easy, I mean, it's kind of along that same line. At some point, you begin to think, why do I need God in my life if I get everything I want whenever I want and it results in me having my own fulfillment? Yeah. Today we talk about, you know, people uh, have so much. The pastor was talking about all the income and all that. Well, mm-hmm. like, uh, coming to church uh, versus uh, not going to church. Right. And we have so much today. Yeah. But do we take it for granted? Yeah, so I've been amazed by the number of storage unit places that are... Have you just, They're just like popping up everywhere. And I'm thinking, what does this say about society... Yeah, well, it says probably a lot of people are downsizing. What I also suspect it says is that there's a lot of baby boomers who thought their children wanted all that stuff. (laughs) You know? I mean, we're in that we're in that same deal. You know, we thought, oh, because we have a, we have boxes of stuff in our garage. He was just convicting the heck out of me during the sermon today. So we have this, and we, but I can still park my car in there. So I feel a little bit more righteous maybe than others do. But but uh, but we got all these boxes of stuff that we got from my wife's grandmother. China and crystal and all this kind of stuff that, that at one time, I remember we had this conversation. Oh, we know Samantha will want this. Well, Samantha doesn't even know what's in the boxes. I mean, you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, she's a single gal. She's got, lives in an apartment. There's not any way that she has room for it. Now, I would love to just unload it on her. That's what I would love to do. But, you know, again, it's just that idea that we sort of keep stuff and we keep stuff and we keep stuff, and then where are you going to put it? What are you going to do with it? And so I think there, there's something to be said for that in, 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 in that term. So if anybody wants any China, let me know, you know, yeah, yeah. What? Well, uh, I'll, ch- I'll get back with you on that. Yeah. Okay, you give the, uh, the China or the whatever to your kid because you think they'll want it. Yeah. Then they give it back. So then you still have it. You still do. They gave it back. Did you try that and they gave it back? Uh-huh. <laughs> they they wrapped it and gave it to you for Christmas or how did they how did they trick you into that? Don't they, they, they moved to another state. Oh, they moved to another state. Yeah, there's a Yeah, they're way smarter than we are, aren't they? Yes, I know it. Maybe just a giant garage sale or something like that. All right. So the idea here is that God says yes and God says no. And most of the time we're happy when he says yes. And then we kind of get a little uppity when he says no. You had your hand up. Did you have your hand? No, somebody said it. What was it? Just that it limits, cause us to be more dependent on God because we don't have anything. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of interesting some of the studies that they're doing on happiness and one of the things they, they have discovered is that societies that have very little are way happier than societies that have a lot, which is sort of weird, isn't it? It's like you would think, oh, we have a lot, so we ought to be happy. But there's something about human nature there that maybe we get our priorities a little twisted up 
when we, when we go after the acquisition of things and then we feel like we have to somehow hold on to those things, that what that actually does is uh, fosters more unhappiness uh, inside. So here's a kind of a question. Adam and Eve first had to learn to be grateful receivers. Okay, so I'm, gonna, I'm really going to kind of zero in on this idea that generosity comes out of gratitude, and that it starts with being a grateful receiver of what God gives, both in the form of his, of his abundance as well as in his limits. So the question that I kind of jotted down for myself is if I don't learn to, be a, to have gratitude, if I don't learn that, and then I don't continually feed that, then what is it that shows up instead of gratitude? Hmm? Particularly when I'm dealing with God saying no or God putting limits on something. What happens? Because it, it isn't like we have a vacuum. It isn't like nothing happens. You remember, we, we are plagued by our sinful nature and because we have that sinful nature, there is, there is something else that takes the place of gratitude. And that's why we have to keep fostering gratitude. We have to keep teaching gratitude. We have to keep feeding gratitude. Because if we don't, something else takes its place. Yeah, Dennis. Entitlement. Entitlement and and what goes along oftentimes with entitlement is resentment. There's an entitled resentment that says, wait a minute, I deserve better. Right? Or wait a minute, how come that guy over there seems to have like everything he wants and he can do whatever he wants and, and yet God is saying yes to him but God seems to be saying no to me. So there's this sort of idea, this sort of expectation that God ought to and then now fill in the blank. God ought to. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like, uh, like when my son he used to get angry because he would see his friends get stuff and he told them, no, you got to go earn it. And, uh, but he later on, he came back and he said, Mom, thank you, because he appreciated that he had to do the earning part. Wow, he said thank you? Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's 25. He's 25. What? That's still fantastic. Usually I don't get to hear that until about 35, which I've always thought that the reason why we get it at 35, where kids say... Um, like, oh, thank you for saying no to me or putting limits on me, is because at 35, usually they're paying their own mortgage. <laughs> and I think, I think maturity is, is sort of, you know, proportionate to how many bills you're having to pay and how, how hard you're having to work for something, and you realize, gosh, I put in so many hours for that money, and then with that money, I was able to do this thing that I wanted to do, you know. And again, it's that idea, if it's handed to me, if it's, I mean, a gift is okay, but if things are perpetually handed to me and I don't earn them, then I do not appreciate them, and I don't take care of them, and I start to look around at other people who seem to have it easier than me, and this entitled sort of resentment is what, is what can often kick in. The other thing I think that sometimes happens is that people kind of go into a sort of fatalistic resignation. They say, well, that's just the way it is. And that seems uh, kind of neutral in a negative way is kind of what that seems to me. So, so the idea is, and, the, and the, so the, sort of the point here is, is that gratitude does not come naturally for sinners, does it? No, it was a right at me. 
I'm looking right at you. It, but it doesn't. It, it doesn't come natural for sinners. It takes the power of God in us to keep empowering that in us. And then it takes us to keep reminding ourselves of all the great things that God has done for us. Look, think about the children of Israel going through the, the wilderness in the Old Testament. And we'll, we'll reference one of the stories here in a second. How grateful were they of God's delivering them from Egypt? They were grateful the day of. They were grateful the day of, like all of us. We're all grateful the day of, right? Oh, this is the best thing ever. Thank you, Jesus, for being there with us. You delivered us and took us out of this terrible situation. And then three days later, they're thinking, gosh, why don't we go back to Egypt? <laughs> I mean, isn't that, so, isn't that so human of us to do that? And then later, and we'll, we'll see the story, when they run out of food, boy, then they really get, get, get anxious about what their, what their plight is. And so that you think in terms of the idea of gratitude, that gratitude is something that comes from outside of us through the power of God and, and, and the realization of what God has done for us in Jesus. And then we have to constantly and keep reminding ourselves of that and reminding each other of that. So let's look at uh, Philippians 4 to get some sense of, again, this idea of what, where gratitude fits in and, and what it takes to maybe become a grateful receiver. Philippians 4, 10 to 14. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Grateful receivers have learned over time, T-I-M-E, that contentment is linked to active trust that God knows what and how much you need better than you do. Is it helpful to remind yourself from time to time that God knows better than you do what you need? John, you're shaking your head like this? Yeah, yeah. Because we forget, right, and sometimes, again, it's that confusion we have about who is God and who is not. Now, I would, I'll grant you this. It's usually a no-fun situation when we have to remind ourselves of that, right? And, and, and you can almost, it almost sounds parental, doesn't it? Of, uh, well, God knows better of what you need than you do. But the truth of it is, is that that keeps us in that servant role with God instead of getting confused about who is God and who is not. And that's the part about that, that you and I have to continually remind ourselves of. Now, Paul, Paul makes this interesting statement. He says, he says I, I, have, uh, I know what it is to be brought low, and I know what it is to abound. I've learned the secret of, place, of, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Contentment empowers you to rise above a scarcity mindset. 
We talked a little bit, I'll put this up on the board, a scarcity mindset. Scarcity mindset. What would the opposite of a scarcity mindset be? Abundance, yeah, absolutely. Abundance mindset. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. A scarcity mindset focuses on how little you have compared to how much God loves you. Notice the difference. What's the focus in a scarcity mindset? It's how little you have. Little, little what? Little of whatever it is that I think I can't live without. Whatever that is, right? But what people that live in this sort of abundant mindset, you don't hardly ever hear them talking about that. They're just gushing about the fact that God loves them and they are so grateful for that that everything else is icing on the cake. Have any of you ever known someone like that? I guarantee if you become like that, people will say you are living in la-la land, right? <laughs> and that would be one of the most wonderful ways they could compliment you ever, wouldn't it? But imagine what your life would be like if, if, if what primarily governs your attitude and your, uh, your mood and the things you think about and the things you focus on, imagine what... you. you Imagine how people would love to be around you because this would be leaking out all over the place. But a lot of us get caught up in this because, again, we're looking at the amount, we're looking at the, the, uh, the quantity rather than thinking about the, uh, the quality of the relationship that we have. So the opposite of a scarcity mindset is an abundance perspective. An abundance perspective. And Jesus sort of alludes to that, doesn't he, in John 10? He says, The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it how? Abundantly, or another translation says, have it to the full. Have it to the full. Yes, ma'am. Sometimes, like, people, like, go more towards the scarcity you can pull people in, the, like, they feel like they can, like, get people to agree with them that they should have this. So, like, oh, I should have a bigger house, and I complain, and I get my friends to agree with me that I have, and I feel like I'm justifying my mindset that I should have this, and I don't. Yeah, can you be sort of, uh, at least in a temporary way, can you, which, would, which would make you more popular these days? Scarcity or abundance? You would think abundance is, but not on social media. On social media, what happens, I think, is there's a kind of a magnetism or an attraction. If I put out there a message that says, I got ripped off. And if you do that, and it, let's say that you don't have any friends and you want a bunch of friends, just do that. Just put that on social media. <laughs> and you'll have 10 million friends. And they'll all, they'll all join with you and they'll say, oh, it's so sad that you got ripped off, but let me tell you my story how I got ripped off. And now we're having a ripped off pity party. 
and you'll have way more conversations than you ever imagined that you did. And there's this sort of negative cycle or negative circular conversation that is a major bummer. And I say temporary friends because that's all it's going to be. It's all it's going to be. And the interesting thing about it, again, and kind of a sad thing, I think, is if you've been around someone whose focus is this, and you try to talk them out of it, or you try to say, oh, no, count your blessings, or you say, look at all the good things that have happened in your life, this person will go to his death trying to defend this and say, no, 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 let me, let me tell you how it really is. You don't understand, and you don't really know. Well, we all know. It's just that we're taking the perspective over here with abundance that says, at the end of the day, I'm God's beloved. At the end of the day, there's, there's so much more that is there for, for me, in some sense, not selfishly, but just there, the reality by virtue of the fact that you're loved by God, and that if God is choosing to say yes to your winning the lottery, or if he's saying no to your winning the lottery, then you're good with it. Okay? Now, if you have a dream tonight of certain number sequences, you know. <laughs> yeah. Did you? Yeah. Oh, there's a cartoon on Facebook that's going around, and it says that the adult is saying to the little, little kid, what do you have to say uh, to get what you want? And instead of saying, please, he says, I'm offended. Oh, I'm offended. Oh, my gosh. Oh, that just sort of grabs you, doesn't it? Oh, she said, oh, can I repeat it? Or do you want to say it louder? It's an adult talking to the child and say, what do you say to get what you want? And I was thinking the child would say, please. But no, the child says, I'm offended. Uh, that says a lot about things today. Yeah, Tim. I think at our very core, I mean, something I think a lot of us are going to remember is like, we're, what is our identity? Because I think a lot of people, when they say like, oh, I got ripped off or something like that, they're identifying themselves as a victim. And right. There's a lot of people that they see somebody struggling, they want to go help them. Mm-hmm. So if I go say, oh, I'm a victim, and look how much attention this is giving me sure. versus... I'm a child of God, looking at all the love that He's given me. Yeah. When we're looking for identity outside of God, we're always looking for that fulfillment in something that's not going to fulfill us. And then it kind of goes back to the story of the man whose life was taken from him, where he's like, well, I'm just going to keep building bigger barns and bigger barns. Yeah. But then it's like, well, I need to protect it, and now everybody's out to get me. And then it kind of goes back to that Yeah, so if you want to talk about victim and somebody getting ripped off, think about Jesus. He, his victimhood played the, the ultimate price way more than any of us did. And it's kind of a rip-off that well, you die for people that don't care about you. Isn't that kind of a rip-off? And so when you think about it from that perspective... We, don't, we, can't, we can't make a good case for the idea that our being offended in some way or our being victimized in some way, and again, it's not to diminish that because people are victimized sometimes, but so often what happens is over here is that we get into kind of a contest with people of who has the worst story of uh, uh, the terrible thing that happened to me. 
Okay? And all I'm saying is, is that what can happen is that that moves us away from remembering that at the end of the day, God loved us enough to send Jesus to be our Savior, and we're looking forward to eternal life in heaven with Him. And that's a great perspective to take. Because even if you're thinking to yourself, I don't know why those other people across the street have more than me. At the end of time, I'm in heaven with Jesus. That's a pretty good deal. Okay? Somebody else had their hand up. Oh, yes, Christina. There, there can be a positive aspect, too, with our mindset. Instead of when we see that, maybe that sad story come across. Yeah. I, I also look at it as there are people on the abundance side who, who give from their heart and the things that God gave them. Yes. You know, whether they were robbed or... Uh-huh. There's, there's also how we look at the event and right. how we react to it. Right. Um, and being those examples, I feel like. Yeah. Because, yeah, there's... there's it's, everyone's so quick to go to the negative. Right. Everyone, like, that's, right. Everyone loves that pity party. Everyone likes to get in that boat. Yeah. And join and help the rowing on the pity party. But it, it's much easier, you know. Mm-hmm. They're always, always having to do a reminder of let's, let's look at the positive. And news... Yeah, and you know, that's the other, and thank you so much for saying that, because that does remind us that we ought to respond with empathy toward other people that are suffering some form of injustice or unfairness or or being ripped off is the kind of word I'm using. But we want to to and need to um, reach out to to those folks. But, but there's a difference in terms of reaching out in the form of, let me tell you my story about how it happened to me versus how do I be someone who is a facilitator of your healing or your reconciliation with someone. And sometimes that requires uh, that th- there's a price tag that often is associated with that because... When I'm having a pity party about something that happened to me, I'm kind of enjoying the feeling of that. And I don't really necessarily want you to come and take that away from me. I mean, isn't that kind of what human nature does? And so it takes some courage and certainly some skills too, but it, but it does say some courage to, to take people to a different place. I think there is some time for that that needs to happen. Yeah. Like I think, a rule in our house, my kids, I... Depending on the situation, I'm like, all right, I'm going to give you two days to wallow. Two days to wallow. Have a pity party. Okay. After that, we're going to move past this and we're going to move on. Like, like we're, you know, like as far as, you know. Like yeah. Like, we can't live in this sad place. We can't live in this victim. Right. Like right. So everybody know that? There's a two-day limit with Christina? Okay. Don't, after three days, don't go complaining to her about some deal that happened. Yeah. And Stephen over there is looking like, what two days? I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. It's probably five days for husbands. Wouldn't it be that? Yeah. Or, or maybe it's two minutes. I think it's two minutes for husbands. Yeah. Yeah. Richard. You know, she brings up a good point. Um, one of the favorite books for me to teach was The Outside. The outsiders. Oh, yeah. And there's a scene in the in there where the people that have much 
cannot see those who have little. And Interesting. so I think that there is kind of a, in this giving thing, if we're living in the abundant, are we being blind to the little? Yeah. I was kind of alluding to that last week when, when you know, when you were teaching the part about the uh, uh, Good Samaritan. I was sitting on my hands. I was just dying to say something at that moment. But, so I'll say it today. Yeah. But one of the fill-in-the-blanks that we did was that, that when the Samaritan saw the guy that was in need, he, the idea of serving is, is that we're giving little or no thought to whose fault that need is. And sometimes we do that when we see people in need. We, it would be very easy to do that if you use the story of the Good Samaritan. So the guy got beaten up and he's laying there half dead on the road and he's got no clothes and no anything. It'd be so easy to walk to, look, to see the guy and say, well, he should have known better. He, he made his bed. Here he knew that road was, had robbers on it. He, 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 came, he walked without an es, armed escort. He probably had $50 bills hanging out of his pocket, just inviting somebody to come and do him in. And isn't that what we do when we see people in need? We say, well, they ought to get a job. Well, here they are here panhandling. They're probably making more per hour than I am. You know, it just, that's what we do. And that isn't good. And I think when you live in an abundance mindset, you're not so focused on how people got into the situation they are, and, and if, they're, if, if how they got themselves into that situation, then that's going to be the criteria by which I just determine if I'm going to serve or not. Or that's going to be the, the criteria by which I d- determine if, how I'm going to feel about that person. So you said it way better in class than I did, but I was dying to say that. So, yeah. Did I say it better than you did this time? Oh, that's true. <laughs> no, seriously, though. Yeah. yeah. I think there's one other thing that Paul is, is saying here, that the abundance mindset is much more than just a resignation to the fact that I'm never going to get this other stuff. Yeah. I mean, people can resign themselves and say, all right, this is all it's going to be. That's not an abundance mindset. No, it's so, not. So there's a whole thing about attitude and gratitude right. that makes the mindset not just... That's correct. That it's because res- resignation has a kind of fatalistic sort of, you know, well, it's, I'm doomed or whatever, okay? But that is not what abundance thinking is about. And when you're, when you're operating out of an abundance mindset, eventually, it's not, it, it, you know, temporarily, yeah, everybody's drawn to this, but eventually they're drawn to this. And to some degree, like, have you ever known somebody that was like, you would call that person a Pollyanna kind of person? What, what is a Pollyanna? What are, you, what are you thinking of when I use that word Pollyanna? What, what are you thinking? What? The glad girl. And that kind of means... They're always happy about everything. And... and is that a compliment to call him the glad girl? It didn't sound complimentary when you said that. That's why I'm saying that. Yeah. But it's a poly, It's like the people for whom the glass is what? Yeah, it's always full or it's half full. Yeah, it might be full of air, but, you know, it's still full. Okay? But, but that, that's, a, 
that it's like, it's like that's how they see things. Now, sometimes it is a little hard to be around that person because, you know, maybe you want a little empathy and they say, well, you know, things could be worse. <laughs> well, that isn't what I want to hear. I, want, I need a little empathy. I need a little bit of, you know, oh, you poor thing. Oh, yeah, this life is terrible. You know, you need a little bit of that, okay? And, and so I'm not suggesting that we're, we're void of that. Okay, well, let's look at Exodus 16 and pull on this story from, uh, from the Old Testament. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. This is at verse 13 to 21. And when the dew was gone, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them, probably because it just stunk up the whole camp, yeah. <laughs> morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. So what's the context of this part of the story? What's going on in the story? Children of Israel have left Egypt. And initially, they had a lot of provisions, remember? Because the Egyptians couldn't get rid of them as, fa as fast as anything, so they're giving them stuff, food and, 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 and possessions and all the boxes that were in the storage units. All that stuff was going with, the, with them, right? The, all the stuff, all right? So that's what the, the context of the story is. And so then they're complaining because they run out of food, and so... God was providing for them. There were quail for them to eat. That was one of the provisions that God had provided. But now in this part of the story, the manna from heaven is provided. And so what, what, when they say, what is that on the ground? Then Moses says, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. God answered their prayers by sending the gift of manna. The manna was a gift and a test of their faith. So what's the two tests of faith that are required where he says, gather as much as you can eat and leave, uh, let no one leave any of it over? Number one test is showing your gratitude by gathering as much as you can eat. Wouldn't that have been something? Imagine, uh, think of your favorite store. Like what, it, what are some examples of your favorite store? And I'm not thinking Amazon here, okay? I'm thinking like actual store that you would walk into. What's your favorite store? Costco. Costco. Okay, what else? What? Neighborhood market. Okay, we're all... Uh, uh, food seems to be the theme here, all right? Okay, could be another store, right? Okay, and imagine someone coming to you and saying, go in there and get as much as you want. Would you uh, take them up on that? I think so. 
So you show your gratitude by what? Gathering as much as you can eat. The second test was what? Eat it all. Now, how's that a test? See, a test, always, a test of faith always involves risk. So if you eat it all, what are you risking? That there won't be any tomorrow. That's the test of faith. So see, the test was gather as much as you need, as much as you want for the people that live within, under your tent, and then trust that God will provide tomorrow the same as he did today by eating or consuming it all. He says, whoever gathered much had nothing left. I thought this was a real intriguing part of the story. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. God took care of what the amount was, was that was needed. So even if I underestimated how much I would need, God provided enough for how much people under the tent would need. So God provided enough for everyone to be full. For everyone to be full. Now, some left part of it, and then it bred worms and stunk up the place. So fear drives a scarcity mindset, which worries that God might not provide enough. Worms and stinkiness are God's teachers. Have you discovered that? <laughs> so the next time something is wormy or stinky in your life, thank Jesus for it, okay? All right, so finally we finish up with uh, Matthew 6, and this is number two in the, in the outline. Christians give generously in response to God, to being called God's beloved who have received much from him. So we look at Matthew 6, 24 to 34. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So the note on serve two masters is, whatever is your master uh, demands your full devotion. It will absorb your energy and insist on your at attention. Now some of that is, again, part of our sinful nature. Sinful nature lives in fear constantly that there won't be enough. That's the message that it continues to send to us. And so if my focus is on having enough, and I won't be happy until I have enough, I, won't be, uh, I, I will be anxious until I have enough. The problem is what? There's not enough in enough. Because I'm putting my sense of well-being into the hands of something that is not entirely under my control. So point two, under you cannot serve God and money. God is the infinite security, both temporally and eternally. Money is a finite commodity, the value of which fluctuates over time. Have you noticed that with inflation? You, know, you can have a lot of money, but your, your purchasing power goes down because of something that's not even in your control. So the question is, which one do you want to hold your soul? Which one of those do you want to hold on to have your soul in the hands of? God or a commodity? That's the question. So Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, about your body, what you'll put on. 
Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So where he says anxious about your life, anxiety is the mind and the body's reaction to the feeling that you have little or no control over a situation. How many of you have discovered that? Very little that we have control over. And so if you base your security in life on how much control you have, you will erode your quality of life, right? Yeah. I think sometimes as we get older, we kind of have to learn that. I mean, we kind of learn that as we get older. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that necessarily we think about that when we're younger. So Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So that key phrase there, you of little faith. Initial anxiety over time can erode your confidence in God's promises. Okay? So faith turns the control back over to God, and it focuses on being a grateful receiver, celebrating that God's nature is to give. See, God, God is not in God's nature to withhold. God is a giver. He's a creator. He's an initiator. And again, we, I think we have to kind of remind ourselves of that and remind each other of that as well. So he says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So Gentiles there, his reference to Gentile, obviously, technically, that means like a non-Jewish person. But here, what he's talking about is are, are those who continually and intentionally pursue the acquisition, protection, and consumption of materialism. That is a tough row to hoe in our society today, at least in America, because we are very blessed. And sometimes the blessings themselves become a heavy weight because we're so focused on, and our economy kind of is focused on that, isn't, is it not? on uh, the idea that you get something and then you use it and when you're done using it, you throw it away or you put it in the box and save it for your children and then uh, in, in the garage or in the storage thing and then you buy, then you would do what? You buy a new one. That's, that's the way we're sort of uh, programmed to think. So your heavenly father knows that you need them all. God knows your needs. Now he also knows our wants. But he's into meeting our needs and then sort of having us learn a little patience with our wants. So it's not wrong to have wants, but it's just to know that God provides our needs. And so he says, seek first the kingdom. As God's beloved, his kingdom offers all that you need. When you die, how much can you take with you? Nothing. I mean, you could, but it's not going to do any good. Because those things are not needed in heaven. The only thing that's needed in heaven is you. And that's what you take with you, is you. Isn't that great? 
So it, it's, it's, again, it's just it's that perspective. We get so enamored with this life and, oh, everything has to be a certain way and, oh, I'm not going to be happy unless. It's kind of a choice uh, as to where you're going to put the source of that. And I think the challenge for us uh, today as we think about the red lever idea is that it, the, it's the generosity of something and it's the gratitude of something rather than necessarily the amount of something. Okay, good stuff today. This was fun today. So next week, we'll get into the last of our things, which will be going, which involves movement. <laughs> so who knows what you're going to walk into in this room, all right? All right, let's, let's close a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our time together today. Thank you for the way that your word reminds us that we're loved and that we need a constant reminder of that, not just from you, but also from each other. And that it's out of what you have done for us that we're then empowered to be able to do for uh, each other and for others. So give us that challenge to, uh, this week, dear Lord, and, and let's see how, that, uh, how those things uh, uh, turn into blessings and, and strengthen us in our faith as well. Watch over us, dear Lord, until we're together again, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room. Here at Messiah Lutheran Church, our mission statement is sharing his light. That means sharing the light that is Jesus Christ and telling others about his gospel. If you want to join us in that mission, please share this podcast with someone that may want to come and better know the light of Jesus. Use one of our past episodes as a starting point to start a discussion with someone or use a past series as a personal Bible study or devotional for your family or small group. If we've given any value to you at all, consider leaving this podcast a rating and review on iTunes. That will help us climb the iTunes rankings so we may better spread the reassuring good news of Jesus Christ and continue to share his light with anyone willing to listen. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.